Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. You can visit the club at www.commonwealthclub.org. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight uh, the author of the book, Foursome, Carolyn Burke, and she's going to be int uh, moderated, uh, interviewed on stage by Julie Stiles, right? Siler. Siler, sorry, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, we are uh, going to do our usual, where we're going to have the uh, conversation go for about 40 or 45 minutes, and then we are going to have questions and, and answers, as usual, from the audience. And as we usually do uh, in the Humanities Forum, I will bring the mic around. So if you have a question, you can just raise your hand. I'll bring the mic right to you. Um, please don't speak until uh, the mic is handed to you, because it's all being recorded. So we're all set. Go ahead, Julie. Great. Thank you so much, uh, George. This is such a pleasure to speak with Carolyn today, who's written absolutely exquisite book um, that I'm so thrilled to talk to you about and so honored. Uh, what inspired you to write about these four people? Uh, thank you, Julie, for your kind words. This book came about by chance. A dear friend of mine introduced me to the fourth and least well-known person, Rebecca Salisbury, who was having a show of her artwork at the Harwood Museum in Taos a few years ago. And he said to me, knowing that I write about adventurous, unusual, artistic women, he said, here's a woman for you, <laughs> Carolyn. And I thought, oh, all right, thank you, I'll look into her. Well, I did. And while I found her art very interesting, the information I could dig up about her was skimpy. And even though I knew there was a big cache of letters um, from her to uh, other figures, including Stieglitz and O'Keefe and Paul Strand, whom she married, I thought, I, no, I don't want to write a life of Rebecca all by herself. But... Carolyn, tell us who Rebecca is, her full name, and who the four, other, the three other people. Oh, excuse me, certainly. <laughs> but the, that's a good idea to introduce them. Rebecca is Rebecca Salisbury, who is the least well known, and she had in her time the um, great credit, in her view, in the family's view, of being the daughter of Nate Salisbury, the impresario, and as he said, the creator of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. <laughs> so she came from what was something like American aristocracy. In those days, the Wild West show was performed all over Europe for heads of state, for Queen Victoria, and this Rebecca, young Rebecca, traveled with the Wild West show as a little girl. So she was no slouch. The others are, um, working backwards, Paul Strand, whom she married in 1922, the photographer, great American photographer. How many of you know the work of Paul Strand? Oh, good. Who was also, um, if you know a bit of the history of, of photography, the protege of the even greater, in my opinion, photographer Alfred Stieglitz who really made this story possible. Stieglitz, you know, was the one who first uh, discovered the work of the very young, unknown Georgia O'Keeffe, showed it in his gallery in New York, and made it possible for her to become the artist that we know. Uh, so these are my four. And they're entangled in all kinds of ways that you can imagine, <laughs> as couples, as friends, as spouses as uh, influencers and inspirations for each other's art. As rivals. And as rivals, yes, as rivals. Now, you write that Stieglitz's intimates orbited around him like the planets of their own solar system. What drew others to Alfred Stieglitz, the great photographer? That's an excellent question. It, we may not think about him now uh, in that same way, but... If we could cast our minds back a hundred years, he was the best known, most famous figure in in the U.S. 
both for his own photography, which was brilliant and far ahead of its time, and as a kind of cultural impresario, because he had a gallery uh, in New York on Fifth Avenue known as 291, after its address, where he showed, uh, now we're talking before World War I, the most advanced art from Europe and from the U.S. He first showed Rodin, Picasso, Matisse, all sorts of household names to us, but who were shocking modernists then. So he was known for both things. And last thing about why Stieglitz, he was a mesmerizing speaker. He had the ability to uh, talk for hours on end and to impart new ways of thinking about the relations of art and personal life. Now, tell me, what was his philosophy of seeing that the foursome shared? Yes, the seeing is a very important word to Stieglitz and the Stieglitz circle. It's hard for us to place ourselves back in that time, but if Alfred had a vision akin to a spiritual or a religious vision, which amounted to something like this, and I'm afraid I won't quite do it justice, that if we could learn to see clearly, without prejudices, without assumptions, without the conventions in particular of 19th century modes of thinking, of Victorian standards, of religious strictures, if we could see with fresh eyes the shapes and forms of our environment and our art, we would be refreshed. And so it was his hope that we, he could somehow improve the state of American culture by uh, cultivating the artists who enabled us to see in this way. Hmm. Now, how did Stieglitz and Georgia O'Keeffe become so entwined? Tell us about how that happened. Oh, that's, a, that's a very interesting. When Georgia was a young painting student in New York, um, completely unknown, but going to art school, a teacher's college at Columbia, she went down with her classmates to 291, Stieglitz's gallery, to see what all the fuss was about. She looked at the Rodins, and she apparently thought that they were just a bunch of squiggles. These were <laughs> Rodin drawings. She couldn't see why anybody was bothering, because they were not particularly representational. We have to remember, this is before the First War, when American art is almost entirely representational. So work of the kind that Stieglitz brought was seen as, as subversive, and some people literally couldn't make it out. So my, Georgia's first contact was puzzlement when she went there. She also thought that... This, and how old was she at this point when she went there? Oh, in her early 20s. Okay. She also saw this charismatic man in the corner with great bushy shock of white hair talking and carrying on and haranguing anyone who came to explain why you really did need to look closely at these squiggles. And she thought, this is too much, too noisy. And she withdrew to another room. <laughs> it was an interesting first meeting. Well, in time, she came to see that it was worth going down to Fifth Avenue to look at what was in his gallery. And she did admit to a classmate that if her work was to be shown anywhere, she would want it to be at 291. This classmate took the hint, and when Georgia sent him, uh, sent her drawings that she was doing that were very unusual, she called them specials, this is in 1916, when Georgia's an art teacher in um, South Carolina. The friend took them to Stieglitz, who was completely amazed and bowled over. He then decided he would offer her a show, which was unprecedented. They didn't yet know each other, but it's from that point on that their entanglement begins. She came to New York, she met him, um, there was a strong attraction Many things happened before they got together, but that's the beginning. Carolyn, I was wondering if you might read the first portion of your book, which describes a little bit what we're talking about. Certainly, with pleasure. This comes up to uh, 1921. We're moving ahead when um, 
In his discouragement after World War I, Stieglitz closed his gallery, stopped taking photographs, and most people thought, well, you know, he's, he's, he's come to the end of his career. In fact, reinvigorated by his love affair with Georgia O'Keeffe, which began a couple of years before, and which moved him to take the absolutely superb photographs of her that I will describe and that I have in, in the first chapter of the book, he was photographing again and finding renewed energy in part because of this love affair. So this was his long-awaited first exhibition in New York in 1921. Alfred Stieglitz often said that taking photographs was like making love. The crowds that flocked to the Anderson galleries to see his work in the winter of 1921 could not fail to note the entwining of creative zest and sexual desire in his portraits of an unidentified woman with a capital W. The study of his model, dressed and undressed, made up a third of the long-awaited exhibition. It's Georgia, of course, to, you know, to jump ahead. <laughs> Within days, it became the most controversial artistic event of the year. Never was there such a hubbub about a one-man show, a sympathizer recalled. In the aftermath of the recent Red Scare and Harding's election to the presidency, Stieglitz's prints looked like an affront to society. To some critics, they were all but un-American, the artist's way of flouting Harding's plan to bring back pre-war standards. In the current political climate, the photographer's assertion of his right to display life uncensored, and in particular these nude photographs, was an act of defiance. Stieglitz has not divorced his art from life, a critic wrote. If one were to find fault with his show, it would be its, quote, lack of reticence. <laughs> Stieglitz, he concluded, keeps nothing back. <laughs> On opening day, February 7th, after braving the icy winds blowing down Park Avenue, Manhattan's cognoscenti gathered beneath the skylight on the fourth floor of a neoclassical building on the corner of Park Avenue and 59th Street. Contemporary reports describing, describe them standing as still as if they were in church. After the closing four years earlier of 291, Stieglitz's gallery, some thought he had given up photography and his role as a guiding force in American culture. But recently, word had gotten round that he had been reinvigorated by his love of the artist Georgia O'Keeffe and that his photographs of her, identified only as a woman, were sensational. His, his resurrection, a critic announced, is a staggering phenomenon, and it's, in its eclat, dazzling. <laughs> <laughs> I loved reading the critics. It was just so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, you write that Paul Strand and Rebecca Salisbury uh, sought to model themselves after Stieglitz and O'Keefe. What did they admire about the couple? Uh, well, by this time, by the time that Paul Strand, who was, if you recall, a, a kind of a um, protege of Stieglitz's, had found and begun photographing Rebecca Salisbury, the daughter of the inventor of the Wild West show, they were very much in thrall to Stieglitz. At that time in the 1920s, although he was 20-some years older than they, he was so charismatic uh, he had an effect on his listeners that was such that they wanted to look to him as a kind of artistic guru, even a, a guru for how to live. So I think naturally Paul and Rebecca, the younger couple, looked to Alfred and Georgia as, um, as models of how to be a pair of artists. You know, it, this was a rather new thing. We didn't have men and women associated in this way as peers. At, at this time, of course, Stieglitz was better known and more influential than O'Keefe. This would change. But just to see the example of a couple who were both producing art, who seemed to be inspiring each other, uh, was 
rather remarkable. And so that's probably why the younger couple looked to them. Also, they were, they were entranced by the wittiness and the amusing qualities of, of the older pair. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're coming out of the Victorian era. Stieglitz was born, you know, directly in it. Yes. And the latter uh, threesome were at the tail end. Um, he called them the children sometimes. <laughs> no, he was the father figure to the children. And he felt it as part of his calling was to encourage and support younger artists who would change the course of art in America in the direction that he f- felt necessary. Yeah. So that must have been flattering, you know, this, you were chosen by this famous figure, this impresario of modern art. Yes, of course. Why don't you read the next section, oh. which is about Strand and Salisbury coming to the very famous 1921 show. So we're going to pick up where we left off, but we're going to introduce those two characters, Paul Strand, the photographer, and Rebecca Salisbury, the cow with it beautiful, flamboyant cowboy girl. <laughs> Whom, who I think we all fall in love with by the end of the oh, book. Oh, we do. Many of us. Although one or two critics haven't been so keen on her, which surprised me greatly. I think she's a hoot. Because, among other things, she becomes kind of a cowgirl when she moves to Taos and rides and drinks and swears with the best of them while <laughs> making art. You know, it's an interesting combination. Okay, here, let's see, here were we going to begin. Um, where were we going to start? The, the gallery became a place? Yes, okay. the gallery became a place. Okay. The gallery, that's the Anderson Gallery where Stieglitz's photographs are on display. The gallery became a place to see and be seen. People returned in increasing numbers. The bolder among them joined the group in the corner where most afternoons Stieglitz held forth, explaining his desire to, quote, embody universality in the shape of a woman. (laughs) He talked almost nonstop, gesticulating and shaking his thick white hair to emphasize his belief that it was in the new world that a truly modern art like photography had found its home. Moreover, he claimed that in his demonstration of portraiture, I'm quoting him, there was an interrelation of the parts to a whole and a symbolism of all life. Those who wondered what was being symbolized may have found some satisfaction in a review in The the Nation by Herbert Seligman, one of the Stieglitz clan. Love of the world leads him to the purest expression of it, to woman, Seligman wrote. Seen this way, his portrait of this woman evoked an innocence and receptivity, quote, that have no home in an America whose genteel standards kept it from embracing the truths of the body. (laughs) We have to think ourselves back to this time. (laughs) Paul Strand took up the defense in terms that gallery goers were more likely to grasp by praising Stieglitz's use of the camera. His essay, Alfred Stieglitz and a Machine, began circulating among New Yorkers keen to understand what the photographer was up to. His work was life-affirming, Strand wrote. Quote, Stieglitz accepted the machine, instinctively found in it something that was part of himself, and loved it. It was also groundbreaking, he wrote. These amazing portraits, whether they objectify faces or hands, the torso of a woman or the torso of a tree, suggest the beginning of a penetration of the scientific spirit into plastic media. (laughs) See, the the language is completely colored by this kind of sexual underpinnings, and there's a lot about that in the rest of the book. Strand could also be heard arguing that he and his mentor were cultural workers, that's his term, that their works offered a mean to identify, quote, those hostile impulses of society which tried to prevent every extension of the human spirit. Understood this way, the camera was, quote, an expression of young desire facing a world and social system which fears and thwarts and destroys. These were fiery words, out of keeping with Strand's habitual reserve, but they appealed to Rebecca Salisbury, a vivacious young woman who accompanied him to the gallery to meet his mentor. 
in the throes of her own struggles with the social systems and her mother's opposition to the desires of strong-minded women like herself, Rebecca experienced their meeting as a turning point. Mm, beautiful. I just love Rebecca, but we'll get to her more. <laughs> more. Um, of course, there's a very destructive side to Alfred Stieglitz's yes. sway over yes. his lovers and his acolytes. And it should be said that um, at this point of the scene that you read, of course, Alfred was married to someone else. When yes. He's obviously in love with Georgia and portraying these very intimate photographs of her. Um, and you quote from one of O'Keefe's letters that, quote, if it was something hot, it was as if something hot, dark, and destructive was hitched to the brightest star. Could you tell us about that? What, what was O'Keefe in, much later in life um, saying about Stieglitz, her former husband lover? Well, she, she was saying, excuse me, pardon me, she was saying that he had a tremendous um, charisma. He was a hot, bright star, and often um, the language of astronomy comes into discussions of their circle as if they were the stars in the heavens of modern art and modern culture, that he was able to emit the heat and light necessary to inspire others and to keep a whole movement going you know, to, uh, for a time, he really was the leading light, literally. But at the same time, if you crossed him, if you didn't follow his um, prescriptions and if you weren't willing to bend to his um, desires and philosophy, he could be very destructive. So there were both things at work in him always. One had to choose, uh, was it worthwhile, if, if you were in the position to do so, to remain in his entourage, to feel the heat and light, to, to receive that kind of um, inspiration, or was it simply too destructive to your own being your own ego and beliefs to hang out with Stieglitz. He demanded uh, something like complete devotion, and not everyone is able to accede to that. And it was so fascinating. There's such a natural arc to this story, this very complicated story of four people, because he's demanding this devotion, and it falls apart. Yes, yes. Um, and it's a you tell it beautifully, and Thank it's a you. very complex, very sensitive story. Um, I, I wonder if you could read the final part of the introduction to the book. Certainly. Yeah. Thank you. It took Georgia a, a, a decades, much of a, of her life, later lifetime, to understand what he had meant to her and what had the forces were at play in their relationship and in their. Uh, entourage in their circles. Oh, shall I start with Rebecca listening to Stieglitz? Yes. All right. This is, we're still, we're back in that uh, evening, the opening in February 1921. Rebecca listened to Stieglitz talk nonstop until closing time as they <laughs> st strolled across 59th Street to Columbus Circle and for the rest of the evening at his favorite restaurant. What Stieglitz and his work revealed to her, she believed, was, quote, affirmation, life kindled. Seeking to recreate herself as a modern woman, Rebecca would often compare herself to Georgia as Paul compared himself to Alfred. He, had he Paul, had just begun an extended portrait of Rebecca as his muse. But this sequence, which he never found satisfactory, was as much an homage to Alfred and to his relations with Georgia as a tribute to the woman who had just come into his life, Rebecca. The two couples would become a tightly integrated foursome with admiration, competitiveness, in-jokes, and alliances passing in every possible direction between them. At this stage, Stieglitz held uncontested sway over his protégés, he molded those who, like Rebecca Salisbury, were awestruck in his presence. Yet it was also true that intimates experienced his wrath if they crossed him. 
Years later, O'Keefe recalled, quote, there was a constant grinding like the ocean. It was as if something hot, dark, and destructive was hitched to the highest, brightest star. In the interweaving of the two couples' lives and work, these extremes coexisted. Constellations on the horizon of homegrown modern art, they prodded, inspired, irritated, and encouraged one another as they grew into modes of relationship that none could have foreseen. Their foursome became more entangled once Alfred began taking photographs of Rebecca in an implicit <laughs> rivalry with Paul, his disciple. And when Georgia told Rebecca that she and Paul had once been so close that they discussed living together. Without Rebecca's encouragement, Georgia would probably not have discovered New Mexico as her chosen terrain, nor would Paul and Rebecca have ended their marriage when he set out to attempt a more politically conscious photography in Mexico. And without Georgia as her model and surrogate sister, Rebecca would not have found her way to her own practice of art in the Southwest, the region that became, for both women, the antidote to Stieglitz's New York. Beautiful. So your book is such a fascinating case study of, of, of marriages that both enhance the creativity partners of the partners, as well as sometimes sap the creativity. Yes. Um, let's talk a little bit about that in the, the case of these marriages. Uh, we how could... did it enhance? How did they sap? At first... How did it... they blow up? Uh... The marriages blow, blew up, basically. Or Stieglitz and O'Keefe kept together, kind of. In a way, yes. Stieglitz, um, we're jumping ahead a bit, yeah. when as Stieglitz is getting older and O'Keefe is coming into her own. She's already a famous artist in the 1930s, whereas Stieglitz is um, no, 24 years older than she, so there's a real change in the power balance and the relationship. To her credit, Although she had already found that she would vastly prefer to live in the Southwest, and she had even found the place that she would come to purchase and, and love best of all, Ghost Ranch, she did not forsake Alfred because he was aging, because there was such a strong affection and bond between them. She would spend s several months, no, four or five months every year in New York with him, make arrangements for him to be well cared for and looked after, and with his agreement, then take off and go and live in New Mexico. This is an unusual arrangement even now, but at the time more so. They worked it out, not without difficulties. Stieglitz had what amounts to a nervous breakdown when he became almost completely hysterical and couldn't sleep for days when she first went to live in Taos in 1929 with Rebecca. He was sure that uh, she was leaving him, that she was having an affair with Tony Lujan, Mabel Dodge Lujan's um, Pueblo Indian husband. It wasn't the case, but he, he lost it. Alfred uh, became almost um, incapacitated. So this, the working out of this kind of relationship was complicated, had to be negotiated over time, and really relied upon the great affection between them, also George's gratitude, because it was Stieglitz who launched her and who created the conditions for her to have the shows in the 1920s that made her name and made her reputation. She, she was always uh, grateful about that, even when she didn't wish to be known as Mrs. Stieglitz after they married. <laughs> well, and she was so clear about who he was, yes. and his dalliances, and his affair uh, with the woman who would, you know, stay with him for a long time mm. and stay in Georgia in his life for a very long time. Tell us about that triangle. Oh, that's it's very steamy, all this stuff. Yes, it's, really, it's, it's juicy. <laughs> juicy. <laughs> yes, and steamy sometimes. Uh, Georgia was, let's say, about oh, let's say 25 years younger than Alfred, which was fine when they first met and for maybe the next 20 years because apparently Alfred was a very 
vigorous and Very generous Randy. lover. I, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Georgia said at one point, every woman should uh, have Alfred Stieglitz as a lover. <laughs> it, must have, it must have been you know, quite delightful in that way. <laughs> However, uh, Alfred had a taste for the young ladies, younger and younger, which may have had something to do with his getting older and older. We won't you know, necessarily speculate about that. But a young woman who was very attractive and a would-be uh, art uh, connoisseur came to one of George's exhibitions at the, gal- the gallery that Alfred had at that time in about 1928, Her name was Dorothy Norman. She was quite taken by the art, and because she had family money, um, in time bought some. But that was not her only interest. (laughs) She she was also quite struck by the mesmerizing uh, impresario of the gallery, Alfred Stieglitz. So bit by bit, Dorothy Norman found ways to become more important and indeed essential to the operating of the gallery. And in a short time, we have to say, replaced Georgia as Alfred's muse. He began photographing her, some quite lovely photographs. Uh, He taught her to take photographs, which is sort of the ultimate accolade of a great artist who passes on his knowledge, teaches his young protege and lover uh, the secrets of what he does. The relationship between Dorothy Norman and Alfred Stieglitz was carried on so openly that Georgia O'Keeffe pretty much had to just put up with it. She took to avoiding the gallery, coming as infrequently as possible. But this weighed on her so. The the two of them were so smitten with each other that they made no pretense about uh, keeping things a secret. Indeed, they seemed to think that their love was above ordinary human standards. In time, by the early 1930s, this was too much for Georgia O'Keeffe, whom we think of you know, as this tremendously strong, independent woman. She, too, suffered a nervous breakdown, was hospitalized in New York, and in time uh, went to Bermuda, which is a great way <laughs> that, that people had in those days to convalesce. But it took her over a year, and uh, this was a very serious, deep um, depression and um, illness that she suffered in large part because of this affair. Alfred was deeply chagrined when he understood what he had done. And soon thereafter, Dorothy Norman, for her own reasons, decided that that she, while she would maintain her strong connection to the gallery and to Alfred, she would no longer play that kind of role in his life. But it changed things between Georgia and Alfred. Specifically, tell us about that very pivotal trip that Rebecca and Georgia took to New Mexico. That was really a changing point in the relationships between the foursome. Yes, it was. This took place in late spring 1929, uh, when the two women, this was before Georgia's breakdown, while Dorothy Norman is still a thorn in Georgia's side, but things haven't gotten quite as bad as they would. Rebecca and Georgia needed a change of scene. They had had enough of this New York art scene, all of the intrigues, all of the difficulties amongst the couples, amongst the members of the larger Stieglitz circle. They wanted some fresh air and some new um, outlooks. So knowing about the Southwest, knowing from Mabel Dodge Lewin, who already lived in Taos, and from other painters who had been there and been inspired by um, the landscapes, they decided to go together to New Mexico. It took a tremendous amount of persuading the two husbands that this would be all right. Because they went together, the husbands accepted, but um, not without some... Uh, complaints. This train trip, which has just been dramatized uh, in San Francisco last week uh, in the opera Today It Rains, which some of you may have attended. It's an opera based on the correspondence between O'Keefe and Stieglitz. 
this was a momentous turning point for the women. First, that they took off uh, under their own steam, you know, that they did this all on their own. Women didn't just go off traveling like that in 1929 with any great ease, uh, generally speaking. But when they got there, they found that the colors, the shapes, the lay of the land, uh, the Indians' way of living, their performances, the freedom, above all, the great freedom that they experienced in uh, first Santa Fe and then Taos, living in a much more easygoing Western kind of way, was what they had been craving. So it was at that point that they began to think differently about their possibilities, what kinds of things they would paint, how they would live, how they would arrange their lives. Uh, and the, the most important, as we know, for O'Keefe, identifying this land as, as you know, what her, real, her heart's desire was. There's a shift there when she's less interested. She becomes less in, interested in personal relationships and more interested in relationships with the environment. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing to say about that is that it was in Taos that Re- Rebecca was finally able to take herself seriously as an artist and figure out what it was that she wanted to do and how to do it. Mm-hmm. Particularly once she met the man who uh, encouraged her so in this respect that uh, she and Paul Strand, who were probably going to be separating anyway, divorced, and she married this Westerner, Bill James, who seems to have um, given her all the encouragement and support that she could wish to pursue her art. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. In addition to writing about these keenly important 20th century artists, you're also writing, in a sense, a feminist story about two feminist artists. Talk about that a little bit, because I don't think many people know, think about them that way. Maybe George O'Keefe, but certainly not Rebecca Salisbury. Yes, it. I've thought about that a good deal, and I've wondered how even to use the terms. Um, I have written um, very deliberately as a feminist in um, many things that I've published, and I, I, I think that is certainly part, an informing part of my perspective. When you come to this period, once again, it requires uh, a, an act of historical imagination to think what such a term, feminist, might mean back then. Uh, it was restricted largely to the suffragist movement, but not used that often. Suffragist was a more important term. Georgia O'Keeffe did join the National Women's Party in the late 1910s when she was a teacher, which is very interesting. She maintained her membership in the National Women's Party and even spoke at one of the party's conventions. But she did not wish to be identified as a feminist, and she objected to terms like woman artist. She wished to be recognized as a modern artist, as we would say in French, tout court, uh, no, without any additional um, qualifications, and not to have any additional terms such as feminist, woman, female, added to her reputation. Now, it's very interesting because she obviously was aware that she painted as a woman out of a woman's feeling. She even told a few friends this, like Mabel Dodge Lewin. At one point, she thought Mabel Dodge, who was then writing articles in art magazines, could write appropriately about George's paintings from a woman's perspective. Mabel didn't do it. But uh, O'Keefe had that sense. However, she, we could not call her a feminist in the way we might use the term you know, in recent decades. 
Uh, maybe that's a bit more than... Mm-hmm. Maybe expected. I'm asking the question out of my experience. Mm-hmm. Having been a teenager in the 70s, and Georgia O'Keeffe was, became a feminist Absolutely. icon she was, by then, she at was, the end of her life. She was, as it were, um, baptized retroactively. Yes, <laughs> yes, well put. Well you put. Know, we, we like to find our, our forefathers and foremothers, as uh, this was the case for me too. I wanted to find artists, particularly women artists, who had been brave enough and talented enough to do the kinds of things that I wanted to do or seen done. And so naturally, I wanted to look to earlier figures, including Mina Loy, the subject of my first book. But yes, in the 70s, we had a different Georgia O'Keeffe who suited our needs in that wave of feminist consciousness. Now, it's very surprising to learn that when Gloria Steinem went out to Taos, to uh, rather to New Mexico to visit O'Keeffe, O'Keeffe turned her away and said, no, thank you, I'm not interested. <laughs> O'Keeffe would say again and again, uh, it doesn't matter who you are, what your sex is, what matters is that you work. Don't complain about your condition, do your work. I kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I kind of like that a lot. It's interesting, isn't it? It's really interesting. To me, Strand was the biggest enigma and not entirely likable. Tell me about Paul Strand. I'm aware I've, you know, admired his photographs for many years, as many of us have. But um, what were the challenges you faced in writing about him? Uh, There were many. And he is, for me, the most enigmatic and and he remains... um, the most aloof, even though I lived with him, so to speak, for a number of years. <laughs> First of all, uh, this is very interesting to note. Both Georgia and Rebecca either destroyed or did not keep Paul's letters. Which, so we don't have his letters. And as these people were all uh, voluminous correspondents, you know, writing several letters a day, that's a huge lack not to have Paul letters. We have a few here and there. We have um, theirs to him. So I had to reconstruct the, the relationship between Rebecca and Paul from her letters Thousands of them, which he saved. I mean, it's mm-hmm. very interesting, the, the, the dynamics of this. But everyone says, including those who are still alive, whom I could interview, that he was so reserved and cautious that people found it hard to get close to him. With very few exceptions, everyone said that he... Um, you no, know, he was really the man who liked to hide under the dark cloth. You know, the camera with the, you put the cloth. The, and that, that was the title of, of a documentary about yes, him. Yes, yeah. I even uh, spoke with the documentarian, the filmmaker who interviewed him about this. He agreed that Strand was very, very hard to get close to. And the filmmaker added such a telling remark. It was Strand's way of doing photography, which he cared about above everything else, including human relationships, that persuaded the filmmaker to go into doing motion pictures where you work with lots of different people, a whole crew. He, the, the filmmaker, decided he did not want to stay under the dark cloth. Mm-hmm. So while I admire much about Strand, I remain um, puzzled by him. I tried my best to do him justice and uh, you know, adm- admiring his photographs, but I could not get any closer to him than um, I am in these chapters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was pleased, one last sure. comment, that he and Rebecca, after their divorce, remained on very good terms, were supportive to each other, traded each other's works, um, and and he came to visit her in the Southwest when she couldn't travel because she had... Um, severe arthritis. So that was that spoke well of him and them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was almost her. a happy ending, wasn't it? They yes, both it found partners who were better suited to them. That's right. Rebecca found a man who would support her who she needed to be as an artist. And yes. She, such an extraordinary, she so, chose such an extraordinary way to be an artist. Could you explain? Because I'm not sure everyone's familiar with her work. Yes. Uh, She chose unusual, quote-unquote, minor um, 
kinds of media, because what would you do if you're a close friend of Georgia O'Keeffe, who has become, you know, the great painter, the famous painter, and you're married to Paul Strand, the photographer? So, you know, how do you choose, how do you find your own way? She was very intelligent about this. She did um, try watercolors, painting a number of different forms. She came across a, a somewhat obscure form called reverse oil on glass. Does anyone know about this? It's really interesting. I had to kind of try to understand the poetics of it. You paint on a glass palette, we can call it, or a glass um, piece, and you start at the front, what will be the front surface, and you paint backwards. So it requires a great deal of control and a conceptual understanding of your subject matter. You work backwards. It produces a, a rather um, stunning effect when well done. It's very difficult uh, to do. A few painters at this time tried this reverse oil on glass and, and gave up, but uh, it was something people were trying out. And it was associated with the arts and crafts, which you know, were seen as a sort of lower variety of art experience. You may have seen in Eastern European countries painting on glass on mirrors or in New England, um, decorative motifs done this way. So to choose that art form was to forego high art and take up a, a more sort of humble practice um, that was akin to a craft. The second thing she did was even more interesting in a way. After living in New Mexico for some time, she discovered a local embroidery stitch called colcha, C-O-L-C-H-A. Anyone know of this? It's a very intricate and interesting needlework which allows you to paint pictures, as it were, with your embroidery. She took lessons with a local um, Mexican woman who was her Spanish teacher and gradually came to see that this, too, was an art form that not only pleased and intrigued her, but it was one that allowed her to treat local subjects. So she found the forms that suited her and that other people weren't doing. Mm -hmm. She came into her own. Yes, yeah, she did. Yeah, it's really lovely. Now, the first sentence in your book is about your own creative collaboration with Lance Sprague. Um, tell, tell us why that was so important to you. This is a friend, a very dear friend in Santa Cruz, where I live, who has helped me in the past with the choice of photographs and illustrations for previous books. He is himself an artist, a practicing artist, and just out of the kindness of his heart would help me in um, this complicated often process of identifying and obtaining the rights for illustrations. Well, it was Lance, whom I mentioned earlier, who said to me some years ago, I think you'd be interested in Rebecca Salisbury because he had oh. learned about her exhibition. He said, I think she's your kind of woman. <laughs> and then, as I told you, uh, I looked into it and saw that it was going to need to be a bigger book about the foursome. But from that point on, Lance has been my collaborator, um, helping me with the research helping me particularly with what I call the visuals, um, teaching me to look through the eyes of an artist to see how a, a Stieglitz photograph might, in a way, in, influence an O'Keeffe painting or vice versa, how um, Paul Strand's deliberate choices to set himself apart from Stieglitz come after the time of his being a mentor and a mentee. So I learned a great deal in the process of our collaboration that I think really informs both the story and the illustrations here. Well, I just want to thank you for this extraordinary group biography. Um, the amount of love, care, work, it took you almost seven years to write this yes. book. And it shows. It's really quite a book. So thank you. Thank you, Julie.
I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences that they're listening to Carolyn Burke speak about her book, Foursome, on Stiglitz, O'Keefe, Strand, and Salisbury. So it's time for questions. Who'd like to ask the first one? Is there anybody today that would parallel that lifestyle? Are there any active artists today that would parallel any of these lifestyles? I'm sure, but I can't really give you examples right now. Perhaps people in the audience can. Um, Thank you. Does anyone have uh, um, any examples to mind? Those are mostly boring. Krista. Krista. <laughs> I can say there's lots of intrigue. There's a lot yes. of intrigue, and there's a lot of work being influenced by intrigue. And likewise, the San Francisco Writers' Grotto is a place where we have about 100 writers, and there's lots of intrigue. <laughs> lots of romance, lots of rivalry. Okay, there's the answer for you. Yes, two, two lively centers of um, influence <laughs> and, and entanglement. <laughs> I've often talked to Carolyn or friends deeply about her process because it's it has to be unique to do four people. So I said, how do you do this, Carolyn? She talks to us. She said, I've talked to myself all day long <laughs> in their voices, and they answer me. <laughs> I thought, that's just brilliant. How, but how could we do that? How can we do that? Well, Elaine, thank you for that. Uh, I think it's a little more my listening to them talking than my talking to them. Although once in a while I would have to say, Georgia, get back, let the others have room. You know, because she's so, she's so dominant uh, that she tended to take over. Mostly it was my listening to their voices in the form of immersing myself in their correspondence because they write back and forth to each other for, you know, Thousands and thousands of letters. So it's like having their conversation in my head. I become something of a medium. It's very strange to say. <laughs> but you, you immerse yourself, on the one hand, in the art, on the other hand, in their babble, their conversation. And in time, it kind of comes through you and out onto the page as best you can in your version but it's a strange process, I have to admit. You know, I'm living part of my life with these people who are long since dead, but they're very alive to me. <laughs> Would you describe it as an entanglement? <laughs> so is, that a, is there a theme in your various books, though, about women artists? What's the relation between the romance in their lives and them finding their own individual creative expression. Like, if you had to say something about that, or maybe say something like, why is that of interest to you? Or what have you learned um, as an artist or as a writer yourself uh, from studying these stories? That is the most important question, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> well, to go back a book, perhaps, and then come back forward, I wrote a biography of the French singer Edith Piaf, called No Regrets after her famous song. And she's very, very well known, often misrepresented because of the legends around her, as having had a great number of love affairs. So we could well ask, what is the relationship between her romantic and sensual life to her art? She put it very clearly herself. She learned... Uh, so much from the various love affairs, which often inspired her to write particular songs and also allowed her to teach her protégés and lovers how to perform on stage. For example, um, Yves Montand was one of those. And she taught him stagecraft. She taught him how to fashion uh, a show. She taught him which kinds of songs suited him. 
there's a back and forth when things are working between the partners, whatever sexes they may be, you know, uh, that can be inspiring. I saw this in Piaf. I could see which songs she wrote and which songs he chose out of the time they were together. Then, of course, things go bad. There are disagreements. You know, there are the inevitable um, fallings apart. But I did learn that these things are very delicate and get negotiated uh, when there's goodwill and when there's true artistic talent there and people are open to um, receiving what someone else can give them. Does does that answer that? It's a partial answer. Yeah. Mm. In, in the case of the foursome... Uh, Rebecca Salisbury wrote literally that at first in the early years of of her marriage to Paul that it was only because of him and because of his introduction to her to the Stieglitz circle and to the very progressive advanced modern art that she could even begin to imagine painting that this opened her eyes and made it possible as did his encouragement. Now he could be critical too which was you know goes along with the uh, territory, but it, it's been very interesting to me to see how these uh, relationships are negotiated and the different kinds of influence and entanglement that can, that arise. Drew, yeah, what's next? Ah, uh, what's <laughs> next? What's next? <laughs> it's going to be something completely different. Ooh. Yeah. Can't it, wait. It's probably going to be something more like a novel, <laughs> which will draw on on autobiographical elements. Yeah. Um, I have a question about uh, the opera that was just produced. Yes. Rains and whether you had a consulting role on, in the production and what you thought of the opera. Well, that's such a, such an interesting question. No, I did not have a consulting role. Uh, the, their opera was developed independently of my work. We only got in touch with each other at the end, at a late stage, when um, they very kindly invited me to come and speak at the uh, pre-opera panel because they realized that my book was in some ways complementary to their project and vice versa. Well, that worked out very well. The opera itself, did you see it? Yes. Ah, I wished that there had been more. I, I loved it that they took the train to New Mexico from New York. I loved the um, moving pictures. I loved the backdrops of the old trains, what they saw from the windows, the old stations. And I felt cut short when they arrived in Santa Fe and Georgia sang, I'm here, I'm here, I wanted more. But maybe that's because I know the story so well and I know how, how rich it becomes after the fact, that after that arrival. What did you think? I actually had the same feeling, but I hadn't really articulated it until what you just <laughs> said. But yeah. yeah, They may, perhaps, they will expand the opera. I'm keeping in touch with the composer, because she's asked me to um, to do so. When I go to New York, I'm going to uh, pr- read from Foursome in New York, and this is lovely. She's going to come, and she's going to bring some of the cast of the opera, who already came to one of my readings. So it's a nice collaboration. It's It's very surprising that this has happened in this timely fashion. Thank you. Did any of the... Excuse me. What do you think? <clears throat> what do you think will be the effect of the internet on future relationships between artists? Ah, oh, well, that's a very important question. As a biographer, I fear greatly that we will not be able to have these kinds of sources again because even email doesn't cut it. You know, there may be thousands of email messages available on, uh, from so and so to so and so, but it doesn't have the same depth or range or quality. I mean, emails are great in their way, but I couldn't write a, a book of this kind from emails. I just know that. So we may have different kinds of, of biographies or studies of um, interesting individuals, but without that massive archive of letters that's at Yale, 
this book would have been impossible. But, mm-hmm. but I'm an old-fashioned kind of biographer. I could be wrong. No, no, I don't think you're wrong, because when people wrote these letters, they didn't anticipate that thousands of people could also see them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, and they're beautiful. The, the, the O'Keefe Stieglitz letters, you can read. They're really wonderful. There's a first volume of the uh, selected letters annotated by an excellent uh, uh, historian of photography, already published. And you see how passionate and literate and literary and funny, downright funny and down-to-earth they were with each other. Now, they did save all their letters except for the Strand letters. So somebody had an idea that these would be important. But I don't know. You know I, that's partly why I'm not going to write m- more biography, I think. No. I'm wondering if any of them had any children. I mean, mm-hmm. either with themselves or with other people. Very important point. Thank you. We, we were going to bring this up. No. And this has a great deal to do with their choices, what they were able to do. Both women considered having children. It took each of them several years and much heartbreak and much um, discussion and uh, everything you can imagine to come to the decision not to have children. Georgia was persuaded by Alfred that he was too old and that if they were to have a child, if she were to have one with him, she would not be able to continue her art career because no one would look after this child properly. She, in the end, agreed, although she had thought she wanted a child. But I think he was, in some ways, right. Rebecca had some doubts about her suitability as a mother and was not finding her way as an artist just when these issues came up. So both women made that choice, which was unusual at the time, and uh, saw it as either I am a mother and have a family, or I live the way I wish and I pursue my art. I'm putting it kind of schematically, but it, it boils down to that. And how about the two men with other... Oh, Stieglitz had a daughter with his first wife, the one he left to be with Georgia. And that is an extremely sad story because that uh, young woman, uh, Kitty, uh, married, had a child, and then became extremely ill in a form of postpartum... um, It's worse than depression. It's a kind of... Psychosis. Psychosis, a postpartum psychosis. And so never had a normal life again, was institutionalized. This was another reason why Stieglitz was so reluctant to have another child. This is interesting. Very 19th century thinking. He thought that he had bad genes, that somehow he had transmitted a faulty uh, genetic inheritance to his daughter Kitty that had caused this psychosis. Rebecca uh, was not happy with family life. Her own mother, uh, she found completely impossible. Uh, Everything she wanted to flee from, and I think her own upbringing had something to do with her choice not to have children. Can you speak a little bit about how Georgia felt about being photographed in the nude and being seen sexually or as um, somewhat of a sex symbol? Very complicated subject, and and, uh, much has been written on it, as you know. We we have to remember that she was an art student and had been an art student for 10 years by the time she met Stieglitz and he began photographing her. She had posed, although with clothes on, not nude, for her fellow art students, and they had all painted from the nude. You'd have a model uh, for the class. And so it was not an unusual thing for her to consider being a model. That being said, um, it was probably rather an unusual and disconcerting thing to model nude for your impresario, for the person who was showing your artwork. However, 
what she wrote about these fo- fo- uh, photographic sessions in her own book about um, Stieglitz's portrait of her, his extended portrait of her, is written in a very calm and even-handed way. She, you can read this. She describes posing for him. She describes the sessions in language that suggests that this was a normal thing to do. So probably up to the point of their being displayed, it was not a disconcerting subject. Probably it seemed like part of what um, you did if you were in the art world and you were um, you know, progressive in your thinking. Once they were displayed, starting in this 1921 exhibition, Everything got more complicated. She was quickly identified, that woman, you know, the stories went round New York. People came to the gallery to see her for that reason. And when her own work, her paintings were then displayed at at the Stieglitz's gallery, inevitably there's kind of an overlap and people began to look at her paintings with the nude photographs in mind which she did not like, understandably. Even worse, the Stieglitz circle, thinking of themselves as very progressive thinkers, used a kind of reductive Freudianism to describe her paintings. You know, here you are presenting your paintings for the first time, practically. They are of flowers. They can be compared to you know, the female genitals. There are many things about the paintings that are suggestive. But what's happening, rather than the critics using a discreet and respectful kind of language, they're bringing up crude Freudianism. At that point, Georgia got mad. She did not want to be discussed in that way, and one can certainly understand that. So she struggled with this issue for the rest of her life, to be able to seen as a, be seen as a painter on her own terms and not in this reductive language that got um, quickly disseminated in the art world. Does that answer? Okay, right. thank you. Time for one more question. Are you familiar with uh, Mary Allender's uh, group biography of Group F64? No, I'm so sorry. I'm not. Well, it deals with a lot of the same characters. Stiglitz is a major character in that. And the West Coast photographers considered Stiglitz to be the villain Uh because he was dismissing the new Western photographers, even established photographers like Edward Weston. Uh, And uh, when a young Ansel Adams went to New York, his fellow Group F64 members thought he was going into the lion's den. Why would you even go well, there to see Stiglitz? Excuse me. It's good that you raised that. There is um, one... I should say something about Ansel Adams, who appears in my book. He was the exception. He really looked to Stieglitz as, um, if not a mentor, a peer and a seer. That ver- verb comes back again, seeing the seer. And there is a wonderful and affectionate correspondence between Ansel Adams and Stieglitz, even though the other members of this group had their criticisms of, of Stieglitz. So Adams remained a, a Stieglitz champion uh, toward, uh, long into uh, the later years. Um, I was aware that there was this dissent, to say the least, among the Western photographers, particularly um, Weston and others. But I focused more on the Adam Stieglitz friendship because for particular reasons in my narrative, it suited me. Right. It would be good to read that book with my book, so to speak. Okay. Thank you very much. My pleasure. So ends another event in the Commonwealth Club's 117 years of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for coming. Well done.